0: keep your Bibles open, um, but if you can put a marker in Psalm 37 and flick forward to Matthew 5, um, that would be really helpful. It's lovely to be with you this morning in Strandtown. I'm in the building frequently with the college, um, teaching um, uh, the evening class on Tuesday evenings across the way there, Um, but this is my first time here on a Sunday, so it's a pleasure to be able to join you here. Uh, So thank you for the invitation. As has been mentioned, we're continuing the series on the Beatitudes, and uh, I've got the third Beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There is one primary problem with this Beatitude of Jesus. No one wants to be meek. No one wants to be meek. It's a trait seldom, if ever, valued in modern society. It's a characteristic we rarely look for in others. It's something that we never have to demonstrate that we possess. Think about the last application form you filled in or the last interview you went to. I doubt you were asked to demonstrate in what way you were meek. No one wants to be known as meek. In his book, The Blessing of Humility, Jerry Bridges begins his treatment of this beatitude with this story. A friend of mine who is an entrepreneur was listening to a CD series of messages I had given on the beatitudes. When he came to meekness, he told me, he skipped over it. He wasn't interested in being meek. No one wants to be known as meek. And the reason for this is because meekness is equated with weakness. Meek people are weak people, or at least that's what we think. That's the image that's conjured up in our mind. Don Carson captures this humorously by highlighting that we think meek people could be knocked over by a hard slap with a wet noodle. I'm not sure if he's thinking about the swimming aid or the food stuff. Uh, I like to picture someone teasing a long noodle out of a pot noodle and then applying it to someone's face. It's a ludicrous image, but it paints the picture. Meekness is weakness, or so we believe. And it would seem that this is exactly the kind of teaching that, in part, Jesus is attempting to correct. After all, the Jews of his day had been eagerly expecting a Messiah to come and rise up in power and vanquish the enemies who were occupying their land. And so as expectant Jews watched this man who was confessed as the Messiah by his closest followers, as they watched him tour the area and teach with authority and heal with might, well, they could be forgiven for thinking, this Jesus is the one to lead an army, this, this Jesus is the one to take back the promised land. But instead, this Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. No one wanted a meek Messiah. Everyone wanted a mighty Messiah, someone with power. And yet Jesus is teaching his disciples that self-assertion is never a Christian virtue. Rather, it is Christian to be busy in lowly service and to refuse to engage in the conduct that merely advances personal aims. Is this not why Jesus refused to let people proclaim him as the Messiah? To tell others that he had healed them? Jesus had come to serve, not to be served. In other words, Jesus advocates meekness over might. And as we explore what exactly Jesus is teaching us here in this beatitude, we're going to be introduced to our high calling, reminded of our holy defender, and then spurred on by our huge encouragement. First, our high calling. See, a Christian's business may be lowly service, but this is a high calling. As I'm sure you know by now, in this third week, the Beatitudes open this famous sermon on the mount delivered by Jesus Christ. At the end of Matthew 4, we read of Jesus calling his first disciples to him in verses 18 through to 22. And then we read of the large crowds who witnessed his teaching and miracles crowding in on him in verses 23 and 25. And so at the beginning of Matthew 5, we see Jesus draw aside with his disciples now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. <coughs> this is important to note because the Sermon on the Mount is not a gospel message per se. It's not a way to become a disciple. Rather, the Sermon on the Mount is describing disciples. It's explaining what is demanded of those who are already disciples. The Beatitudes are doing the same. And in that sense, the Beatitudes are not a buffet of Christian characters from which we pick the ones that we want to exhibit. They're a unity. And together they describe the disciple. Each of Jesus' disciples is to exhibit all of the Beatitudes in an ever-increasing manner. And this in turn suggests that they are not driven by personalities, but by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, any given beatitude cannot simply be a tendency. If all Christians are to display them, then they are a work of Christ in us. And so the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount as an entirety depict the lifestyle of a disciple of Jesus Christ. They describe a way of being. And that's no less true for this third beatitude, being meek. And so if we are disciples of Christ, we cannot simply skip this beatitude. We must wrestle with it. But before we attempt to define, define the term meek, we need to appreciate the richness of the term blessed. In the beatitudes, this term is a strong affirmation or a declaration of divine favor, which leads to rich joy. Don Carson notes that those who are blessed will generally be profoundly happy, but blessedness cannot be reduced to happiness. It's more than being merely happy. It is a joy found only in divine approval. And this joy, this divine approval, Jesus teaches us, will be experienced by those who are meek. Now, like many Greek and Hebrew words, this term meek carries numerous shades of meaning. To begin with, we should note that the term defines those who are accommodating, considerate, gentle, temperate. There is a healthy, self-effacing nature to those who are meek. Additionally, those who are meek are self-controlled. This attitude and this behavior is, is driven by an accurate understanding of ourselves in light of God's word. And as we come to this accurate understanding of ourselves as lowly disciples of Jesus Christ, we can refrain from promoting ourselves. We can refrain from uh, our, engaging our desires or serving our desires so that we might be able to serve others. And finally, this term meek speaks clearly of strength because it describes someone who defers to the preferences of others because as disciples of Jesus Christ, they appreciate the privileged position they already possess. This is what it is to be meek, to exercise self-control in deferring to the preferences of others because we know the privileged position we have as disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you see how high a calling this is? Do do you see what Jesus is calling us to? And notice that Jesus is calling us to it. Disciples are not merely puppets or pre-programmed robots. Disciples of Jesus are thinking and acting beings. And so Jesus is calling you to employ your head and your heart. Your intelligence and your will. He's calling you To choose to behave differently. The high calling issued by Jesus to his disciples here is the call to freely choose in the power of the Holy Spirit to defer to the preferences of others. To control our desires. Because we understand the privileged position we possess as disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't force you to obey. He doesn't override your hardwiring. He invites you to glorify your Savior. Recently on social media, I saw a video of a 10 pin bowling robot. It picked up the bowling ball in its pincers, lifted it about three feet in the air, spun the ball at a ridiculous rate, and then let it go. The ball smashed the first pin without hitting the floor in between and secured a strike. Now, if we all engaged in 10-pin bowling in that way, it would become a very boring game, wouldn't it? Every game would be a draw. All the players would score 300 points after securing 12 strikes. It'd be rather bland. It's far more engaging and exciting and profitable to bowl the ball yourself. Of course, it might fall in the gutter every once in a while, but sure. You're engaging your will, your mind, your skill, your abilities that's what jesus is calling us to here he's not going to pre-program you to live the way that you should live he's going to equip you to learn to grow to live that way our high calling is to willingly look to the interests of others to readily embrace the call to be meek and yet in his goodness our savior does not call us to do anything that he was not willing to do himself Twice in his gospel, Matthew uses the same Greek term to describe Jesus Christ. In a famous saying in Matthew 11, verses 28 through to 30, Jesus is speaking and he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this instance, the Greek word has been translated as gentle rather than meek, but it's the same term. The same term that Matthew has used in the Beatitudes is the same term that he uses here for Jesus describing himself. Jesus is describing himself as what he is calling his disciples to be. And then again, Matthew 21 and verse 5. Quoting Zechariah, Matthew writes, Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, Matthew recalls a prophecy, Zechariah 9 9. Jesus is fulfilling it. And once more, although the word is translated as gentle, Matthew uses the same Greek term. Jesus is what he's calling his disciples to be. And this is such an encouragement, or at least it should be for us this morning. Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he is not willing to do himself. More, Jesus accomplishes this in the flesh by the power of the Spirit. In other words, he isn't cheating. He hasn't pulled out the God card. Jesus is achieving this high calling in exactly the same manner his disciples are to achieve this high calling, by employing our wills empowered by the Spirit. Jesus is is not a do-as-I-say teacher. He is a follow-me teacher. After Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took over as Manchester United manager, and uh, I'm showing my colors here so some people might switch off now. But after he uh, became manager of Manchester United, the publicity was all about how he had scored this famous goal in 1999 to secure the Champions League win for Manchester United, and in doing so, the treble. It was all about him sharing this, Uh, and so soon after he took over, there was a picture of him sitting on the grass with a couple of the young strikers from Manchester United, and underneath this picture was a description of him describing this goal that he had scored. The the implication was that the previous manager, Jose Mourinho, talked the talk. He said, do as I say. This new manager, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he said, follow me. Do as I have done. He had walked the walk. And this is the meekness of Jesus Christ. He's not calling us to do something that he himself has not done. He has walked the walk. He has shown us that our high calling is possible. By employing our wills, empowered by the Spirit. And so, that is our high calling. Secondly, we're reminded of our holy defender, because it's, it's all well and good explaining that this is our high calling, describing what being meek actually is. But how do we get to a point where we happily defer to others? Well, the Old Testament background to this beatitude offers us the all-important answer, our holy defender. This beatitude in Matthew 5.5 5 is a direct quotation from Psalm 37 verse 11. Uh, and of that psalm, Derek Kidner writes, There is no finer exposition of the third beatitude than this psalm. And that's why we've had it read in its entirety for us already this morning. So please flick back to Psalm 37 at this point. In what way does this psalm further explain the beatitude? And more importantly, in what way does it help us fulfill this high calling? Well, Psalm 37 does so by reminding us of our holy defender. Look at the exhortations given to the reader in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Or verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. Or verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. We are to trust in God. We are to commit ourselves to God. We are to wait patiently for him to act. Kidner explains. This context gives us the best possible definition of the meek. They are those who choose the way of patient faith instead of self-assertion. The meek are those who choose the way of patient faith instead of self-assertion. See, the psalmist's world is a world full of injustice, full of hardships that test meekness to its full extent. Look at verses 1 and 2 in verse 7. It's clear that the wicked and the evil are triumphing. They're apparently successful. But, says the psalmist, the meek trust God. They commit themselves to God. They wait patiently on God to act. All this is easier said than done, isn't it? After all, nothing excites emotion like injustice. Perhaps the greatest possible test to my meekness on a regular basis is watching drivers either breaking the speed limit or using their mobile phone, or usually doing both at the same time. There I am, trying my best to be a submissive citizen. And there goes Mr. Successful in his Jaguar, doing 60-something in a 40 zone, using an iPhone which is more modern than mine. Have you ever noticed that? It's always someone who looks richer than you, driving a nicer car than you, with a newer model of mobile phone than you. (laughs) But it's the injustice of it all. There I am, trying my best to be obedient, and he's not, and he doesn't get caught. He's winning. But Psalm 37 encourages us to be meek, to employ patient faith. It calls us not to defend our own rights, Not to defend our personal preferences or our burning desires, but to forego them and to await our holy defender. John Piper notes, biblical meekness is rooted in the deep confidence that God is for you and not against you. God is for you and not against you. And if that is true, we can happily defer to the preferences of others. Because we know we have a holy defender. I've used the term holy purposefully here, not simply to maintain the nice alliteration that we have, but it's because that's how the psalmist describes God. He is holy, he is righteous, he is just, he is perfect, he is good, he is utterly unique. Look at the defense that this God delivers for the meek. Look at verse 20, for example. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. Verses 27 and 28. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. Verses 32 and 33. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, intent on putting them to death. But the Lord will not leave them in the power of the wicked, or let them be condemned when brought to trial. Verses 37 and 38 Consider the blameless, observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace. But sinners will be destroyed. There will be no future for the wicked. Our defender's holiness is demonstrated by his complete eradication of the wicked and his protection of the righteous. That is how we can remain meek. That is how we can exercise the self-control to not promote ourselves because he will do it in the end. If you happen to be here this morning and you're not a Christian, you find yourself in a perilous situation. Because you are the wicked, the evil, the enemies of this psalm in Psalm 37. You're alienated from this holy defender. And because of this, you face his just judgment. So I want to take time this morning to warn you of this judgment. And to plead with you to consider salvation. The salvation that Jesus Christ offers. He offers deliverance from this judgment. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, writes that it is Jesus who rescues us from this coming wrath. Because of Jesus' meekness, deferring to the plan of the Father and dying on the cross to secure our salvation, we can be forgiven and be made disciples. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to encourage you to avail of this opportunity while you can. Because at some point it will be too late. I'll confess this morning to being a fan of The Simpsons. And in The Simpsons there's a judge who loves to show leniency. He's called Judge Roy Snyder. And he always looks favorably on those who show some sign of repentance or remorse. Even if it's not 100% genuine. Bart and Homer, two of the main characters, avail of this often, perhaps too often. But on one occasion, just as they're awaiting a lenient sentence from Judge Snyder, his alarm goes off. It's his vacation time. And so he gets up and he leaves the chair without passing the sentence. He's replaced by Judge Constance Harm. You can imagine she's a little bit stricter than he is. And so there's a stricter judgment set down. Now, it's not a perfect illustration. God does not change, and he does not take false repentance lightly. But at some point, the opportunity to avail of the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ will have passed. At some point, we will be judged wholly on whether we are a disciple of Jesus Christ following him, or whether we are a disciple of self-serving ourselves. This psalm operates like a telescope, offering us a way to see the end of time now. And as we look through it, we see that there are values that last and that bring reward. As we look through it, we also see that there are some values that are transitory and destroy, even if in the present they look tempting. The values that last and make for peace are trusting God, committing our way to God, waiting on God. In other words, being meek. If you're not a Christian this morning, take a look at this psalm. Look through this psalm to the end and see the judgment that awaits the enemies of God. If you are a Christian this morning, take a look through this psalm to the end and note how our holy defender will act for our good. And so we see our holy defender. Third and finally and very briefly I promise we are spurred on by this huge encouragement. Our huge encouragement. It would be remiss of us to finish there because this beatitude promises a reward. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. As we've mentioned this beatitude is a quotation of Psalm 37 verse 11. The promise threaded throughout Psalm 37 is that the righteous or the meek will inherit the land. It's mentioned in verses 3, 9, 11, 18, 22, 27, 29, 34. Just to impress upon you the thread that runs through that psalm. This is the promised land that is being referenced. The land that God promised to place his people in. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land of abundance and peace, of joy and fulfillment. And the Psalmist is encouraging his readers with the promise of inheriting this land, inheriting it in its fullness. That promise is reappropriated by Jesus and the New Testament authors. Notice that in the Beatitude of Jesus, it is not simply the land, but it is the earth that is promised to the meek. With Jesus' teaching, the pious Israelites who inherit the land have become the followers of Jesus who inherit the whole earth. The author to the Hebrews picks up this discussion uh, whenever he references Abraham and his immediate descendants in chapter 11. There he reminds us that they all died without inheriting the land. But he also tells us that they were holding out for a better land, a heavenly land. Peter in his second letter then explicitly teaches us that we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And finally, John in Revelation 21 reveals the arrival of this new heaven and this new earth. Here is our huge encouragement, quite literally huge. The meek are promised the whole earth. Everything that we have forsaken in deferring to the preferences of others. Every denial of self for the good of another. Every sacrifice of self-control will be rewarded. Our consolations in the last day will more than make up for our tribulations in the present day. And surely that should give us the encouragement needed to continue in our endurance as meek followers of Christ. Rudolf Steer has written, self-renunciation is the way to world dominion. Self-renunciation is the way to world dominion. Is that not what Jesus has promised? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Have you seen the Fridge Readers par ad on TV? Uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. The character in the advert, Julie, eats some, power, eats some Fridge Readers chicken packed with protein. And so she develops a taste for power. And in the advert, as she develops this taste for par, she par dresses, so from a trackie into a lovely trouser suit. She gets par shoulders, which look like nineties shoulder pads. She gets par hair, a big fro. She begins to play par ballads on par keys and goes par walking on a par boat. And then the ad closes with this tagline, get a taste for par." And that's the mantra of our world this morning, isn't it? Get a taste for power. Don't get assaulted by a wet noodle. Get a taste for power. That's not how Jesus sees it. And therefore that's not how his disciples should see it. John Blanchard claims that meekness is a defining grace. Given that no one wants to be known as meek, perhaps he's correct. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is our high calling. It is executed in light of our holy defender. And it is energized by our huge encouragement. And so I end with this question. Do you want to be known as meek? Do you want to be known as meek? Let me pray.